Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Parents concerned about their children's reading abilities want them tested for dyslexia, but does the school system do an adequate job of determining who has characteristics of dyslexia? Should parents bring in outside experts to perform their own examinations? Dr. Tim Odegaard, a professor of psychology and holder of the Murphy Chair of Excellence in Dyslexic Studies, is the co-author of a study published in the academic journal Annals of Dyslexia, and his findings are especially but not exclusively pertinent in Tennessee. We'll read all about it after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU's Center for Health and Human Services is helping improve Tennesseans' quality of life by addressing the quality of its water. The Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation has provided the center with a $56,000 grant for a public education campaign about water quality and the impact of nutrient runoff from Tennessee to the Gulf of Mexico on human and environmental health. Throughout 2021, the Nutrient Reduction and Water Quality Campaign is using print, radio, television, and social media platforms to reach various audiences, including farmers, wastewater treatment facilities, students, educators, and the general public. The center has created two internship opportunities for MTSU students to help develop and promote educational materials on water pollution. And rising junior fermentation science major Calvin Hood of Greenville, Tennessee, is the inaugural recipient of the 10th and Blake Brewing Education Scholarship, awarded by Athens, Georgia-based Terrapin Beer Company. The 10th and Blake Brewing Education Scholarship Fund supports underrepresented undergraduate students seeking an MTSU fermentation science degree. The $7,000 award for Hood also provides an opportunity to intern with Terrapin during the summer between the student's junior and senior year of college. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. One of the points you make in the study is that in Tennessee, 66% of public school children cannot read at the third grade level by the end of the third grade. What impact does that have on the system's ability to detect dyslexia in children? Uh, My research and the research by other researchers, one in particular, Paul Mergren, highlights that it's difficult to find a frog in a pond full of frogs, or it's difficult to find uh, a piece of chocolate chip in a box of chocolates. So when all the kids in a school or the majority are struggling to read words and spell them, it isn't really exceptional and out of the ordinary for a child to be struggling to read and spell, which it makes it very difficult to find those who have a brain basis that might predispose them to struggling in those areas academically. And this could have terrible psychological ramifications for the children. After all, uh, before there was a greater research into and uh, awareness of dyslexia, a lot of kids were mischaracterized as stupid when in fact they had a problem that could be worked on, right? 
Yeah, that is actually the case, is that um, often the blame would be levied at the child for not working hard enough, not being capable enough in, um, in just one domain, the ability to read and spell. We often forget that we also sometimes blame parents or parents blame themselves for being inadequate, not loving, not caring, not providing enough for their child. And then third, I would like to highlight that we often forget that there's the teachers that are sitting in there in their classrooms and they want to teach and help their children. And they are really flummoxed when they come across kids who, even though they're doing everything that they're supposed to be doing, these kids are still not responding and doing as well as they would expect them to do. So we really have a blame game that really impacts all of those stakeholders that are most important and the most important being those children in the classroom and in the homes. Describe, if you would, the three-tier system that is used to assess the student's reading abilities. Oh, well, that's a hard question to put into a nutshell. Here in Tennessee, we have a state uh, policy and procedure in place within our public schools that we're supposed to be screening always three times a year, starting off in kindergarten to identify those children who are at risk before they fall behind. And then when kids are at risk, we're supposed to elevate and provide them with supplemental instruction through what we call tier two to help head off any pronounced reading struggles. We know from established research that's been going on for 25, 30 years that for most kids, they'll respond to this little bit extra and they'll stay and keep a pace and never fall too far behind. But when well-ran systems, about five to 15% are gonna fall further behind and they're gonna need more intensive sustained and they can be elevated up to what we call tier three. And then those who need even more can be uh, qualified and evaluated for special education services. That's one pathway to a child qualifying um, for special education services through the public education system. So for the purposes of your study, what was your methodology and how did you employ it? Ah, now that's really important because we did employ a limited methodology. As, as we've discussed in the past on this programming, I have the, the privilege of heading up the Tennessee Center for the Study and Treatment of Dyslexia. One of the services that we provide the community is we do limited testing based on our resources for kids from all over the state. We looked at data since the state had implemented its, its multi-tiered systems of support, what they call RTI square procedures to look at when kids were coming in from external referral, often by their teachers who had concerns that they weren't actually able to meet their needs back in the schools themselves and from parents. And often we had parents who were teachers themselves seeking these external referrals, they'd come in for testing. We pulled from data that we've been gathering for five, for five years while RTI Square was running in the schools to look at and ask a simple question. Do the kids who come into the center have characteristics of dyslexia? Yes, most, most of them do, which makes sense because they were, uh, they were at risk and they were being referred outside of the school. But we also looked at the school data that was shared with us from the schools themselves under FERPA and a parent request for information that they then shared with us. So we had access to years worth of students' information to see what the schools were reporting and gathering as part of RTI Square. And what we identified was in those limited clinic referral cases, the schools were not properly identifying kids in the RTI process through proper screening mechanisms for being struggling readers and triaging them up to read services. We would look at this in a couple different ways, but one way we would look at it if they were in SPED, were they actually having the needs that we identified through external 
testing addressed in their IEPs, which are the documentations that says what they should be receiving instruction to support. Often that was not the case. We were looking to see, were they struggling on a, a measure that would be something like they should be using in the schools for a screening process? And we would find that, were they actually tiered up to tier two or tier three in the general education setting? Often they are not. So what we were able to do is at least in this referral sample, we are having parents who for right and just cause are having to seek external um, validation for what they, and oftentimes the classroom teacher think is the case, that the child is struggling, that this struggle is pretty pronounced and they are struggling in the areas of characteristics of dyslexia underneath a 2016 Tennessee state law. We'll take a break right here. We will be back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. TERA wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to Terra, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The holder of the Murphy Chair of Excellence in Dyslexic Studies, Dr. Tim Odegaard, is our guest, and we are talking about a study that he has co-authored about why uh, children in Tennessee are not necessarily getting the help they need uh, or having their dyslexia uh, discovered uh, because the reading comprehension in Tennessee schools is in such dire straits, at least in part. Uh, Tim, which of the exercises in your uh, study were timed and which weren't and why was that important? Ah, well, we had several measures. So we had some measures which are timed, which are called curriculum-based measures, which are instruments that educators can use, which are fast, reliable, and valid measures of, of reading passages. And we were using these. These are the same types of tests that many educators use across the state to hopefully drive the RTI square process in Tennessee schools. So that was one of them. They would read passages, uh, text um, made up of a paragraph or so, and we would see how long they took, how many errors they made, and then we would look at these normative tables that are based off of uh, children who are sampled from all over the country to determine where they fall on kind of the distribution of kids in this country and how well they read. We had other um, what we call more norm referenced um, achievement tests um, that we did as well, that they would be presented with a list of words and we would see how many words they could read in let's say 45 seconds. And then we would look and see <clears throat> how well they could do with some what we call pseudo words or words that you could decode based on sound simple correspondences, how letters go with sounds. Then we had a whole other host of, of measures that were untimed. Um, it's important to take away that time constraint and the text and anxiety performance that can be there. I know my son has anxiety sometimes in that type of a domain. So we like to 
get both a timed and an untimed measure. They give us a more complete holistic view. Now, word reading were not the only types of measures that we gathered. We also looked at spelling. We also looked at written expression. We also looked at oral comprehension, listening. We, we also looked at reading comprehension as well. So we give a pretty complete battery of literacy skills when we're looking at our children. And in young kids, we'll even look at letter formations and letter knowledge as well. That was one of the questions that I had in mind to ask you of, of the deficits in question, word reading, decoding, oral reading, fluency, reading comprehension, phonological processing, which of these represents the biggest deficit or the biggest concern? Well, all of them are to be concerning. So I think that if you wanted to look at what would be the deficits that would be characteristic of dyslexia, according to Tennessee state law that was signed into law even before the 2016 law, we have adopted a definition of dyslexia. In that definition, we define the core characteristics of dyslexia to be word reading inability, so isolated word reading problems and spelling. These are often associated with and sometimes caused by problems with processing the sound structure of spoken words in our language. So when it comes to defining here dyslexia, those are the most important deficits. However, in our sample, we found pretty pervasive deficits in our children that they had um, deficits across the board, which is it's a little alarming um, that we see that. This is a study that we'd also found when we were working in the state of Arkansas and we published um, a, a similar study with a much larger sample of children in second grade, several thousand kids. And we found the most common deficit profile to be one of a mixed type that we have um, in the research literature, which is they struggle with reading comprehension, but they also struggle with word reading and spelling as well. So yes, these kids often have the core characteristics of dyslexia, but they have more pervasive problems that are coming into reading comp, which may be because they have comprehension deficits more generally from a language standpoint, but it also could be just as much that their word reading abilities are inhibiting their ability to actually comprehend written language properly and effectively. Or they could have conditions like ADHD or hearing problems. When two conditions co-occur with one another, we call that comorbidity. Two conditions that co-occur quite often are ADHD and dyslexia. Uh, another co-occurring example um, um, thing with dyslexia is a math, a math um, disability everybody is getting underserved. Why? Why is this occurring? Uh, there are a host of reasons and a host of reasons that uh, the, the current administration here in Tennessee are hoping to address. Uh, the majority of children struggle in the early grades to acquire the skills they need to set them up for success in school, and, and life, which is the, the core foundational skills of literacy. Some of the issues that we do run into is a, a workforce of educators who are struggling to have all the background knowledge they need to be the most effective educators in the classroom to teach the early skills of reading effectively. Another issue that we have is good, clear communication and clarity from leading experts like myself coming together and being more of a shared voice for reason opposed to conflict and dissent and excitation in an age of social media if you really want to be honest and blunt with this we need less uh, bombastic explosions of what's wrong with the world and more consensus on what we can what is right and can be right and third we need leadership it's difficult for educators 
to go off to PD at our center or even in the best of places or from the state and to learn about things when they go back and they're, they're planted in a culture where they don't have leadership to show them the path forward to where how they can take what they're learning and bring that back to enact change in the classroom. And that requires leadership to provide them the tools, materials, and space that's needed to implement those practices and to then support them by coming into the classroom, seeing what they're doing, learning about why that's important and how they can better support it. I could go on and say, fourthly, we need to have um, the, the awareness that as a society, we should and could do better in an area of coming together to, to raise all of this. It isn't about the five to 15% who might have a neurobiological predisposition. It's about the reality that when 66% of the kids in the state can't read on grade level by the end of third grade, something is fundamentally amiss with what's happening in our state. And those numbers mirror what's happening in the nation. It's important, the research shows, to reach the kid as early as possible because those early years are critical to helping the child develop into a productive adult, right? That's exactly right. The best intervention is prevention. And what we want to do is, is we want to cap that down. The best model is not a triage model. It's a model that's based on preventing what is could um, the calamity that can ensue. So what we find oftentimes when we work with schools and we're trying to support them is, is that they're dealing with certain challenges and those challenges are exacerbating their, their needs. And it's preventing them from addressing what they really want to do, which is to get in there on day one when they have the chance to start working with these kids, either in pre-K, if that's the situation they have in their school districts, or in K, and really get them the foundational skills they need. I think we should also raise awareness that what one school's needs and challenges and opportunities are, are not gonna be the same. A school here in Middle Tennessee, in one context, may have different challenges that they're dealing with on a daily basis. If you're dealing in a high poverty, high need school, and you have a high percentage of trans transients due to homelessness and food insecurity, Day one problems are different than day one problems in an affluent upper middle class family where their challenges and opportunities are fundamentally different. I know that teachers are tired of people like myself presenting and saying that, you know, the problems are so simple and black and white when even the base challenges that are presenting aren't the same across schools in different contexts. And we could go out to, I came from the, the uh, Appalachians of Arkansas and the Ozarks, but I know that those communities out in East Tennessee have a whole host of different concerns and issues of, of security and, and opportunities that they have as well. They're not all the same, but, um, we should take that into consideration when we're communicating and expressing what the needs are in the home, as well as in the school and what the opportunities are for, for growing and developing. Time for another break. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. 
All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about detecting who has characteristics of dyslexia and who doesn't, and how do you do that when there are kids who don't have dyslexia who can't read at the third grade level by the end of third grade. Dr. Tim Odegaard has done research into this. He's a professor of psychology and holder of the Murphy Chair of Excellence in Dyslexic Studies. One of your concerns is that while the parents have been diligent advocates for laws intended to help their children, they're not on the same page with dyslexia experts. Dyslexia experts and parents want to accomplish the same meritorious goal, but they don't go about it in sync with one another. Why is that? I think part of it is a lack of coming together and establishing common ground or a common sense of purpose. Um, and, and also, quite frankly, I, I think that the, the situation that we have put in place as a society sets parents up for almost like an inevitable, tragic outcome. If they know that they're doing as much as they can and have tried so hard, and there's tears and there's agony in the home, there's extra resources and tutors and everything being provided. And they know that their child is bright and wonderful and they see so many, so much evidence for that wonder and that brightness, then they know that those two parts of the equations are okay. And then they think, well, I'm just going to assume that all the other kids aren't struggling and the parents of the other kids aren't having these nights of tears and agony and all these extra hours and the children not being able to be in extramural sports because they spend every afternoon with a tutor to learn what they should have learned in school, then you start to think that my child's the exception and that what I need is a law for exceptional children. But if we were to actually be honest, which is something that I will credit the current administration in Tennessee for doing, which is saying, and I quoted them, that 66% of the kids in by the end of third grade in Tennessee aren't reading as they should. The five to 15 with 16 for dyslexia are not exceptional cases in Tennessee. They are the norm, not the exception. And so if we don't actually acknowledge the true root cause of the problem or the true problem, the problem is the majority of children in our state are not reading at grade level. Then we can have conversations about what the solution to that true, more grounded problem is. And we have to address the third issue. Do we actually care and have the stomach to do what it takes to address the problem at hand? And that if we would come together and have that conversation and then reach out to the researchers to say, I know that you guys want to elevate through science and what we've come to learn education for all and put better in place for everybody. If we do that, then those kids who will need the exceptional and different will be better identified and found to begin with. So our true outcome is the same. And if you care about dyslexia, you need to care about the other, let's say 45% of the kids in the state who are struggling, not because of a neurobiological difference. Do some parents feel the only way their kids will get the attention to their reading deficits that they really need is to have them labeled as dyslexic, even if they're not really dyslexic? They are that desperate. And what they want is they want protections and they want law and they want something in writing and documentation that they can point to and have that security and peace of mind. Every day is a challenge. Every day is a struggle. Those of us privileged enough to have the resources can put those resources to doing something outside of the system, but it shouldn't have to be that. Those that are not as privileged to be able to do that are going to be left with what they can get in the system. 
And so if we don't elevate and make the system workable and better for all, and the system shouldn't look the same and the system shouldn't be the same for every student. So I'm not saying that the dyslexic solution is what we wanna make for everybody. What I'm saying is, is that if we don't address and give everybody basically what everyone should get as a basic fundamental minimum, then we can't give the extra support in other avenues which are set up like special education or the tiered systems of support that the few will need to excel and succeed. So this isn't the let's make everything like it should be for the dyslexic mindset. This is the let's make everything the way that it needs for the majority of kids to succeed and thrive and then allow the exceptional cases to get what they need or what they would benefit from. What kinds of research opportunities do you think your study can be used as a jumping off point for researchers to explore uh, related themes. I think that one of the things that we did was we make a lot of inferences about what might be happening back in the schools. And we were held accountable since this is a peer reviewed process to not overstate what our findings are. I have highlighted that for the study that you asked me on to talk about, we had a few kids, they were a select sample. So we had partnered with the state of Arkansas and we looked at all the kids in the state of Arkansas to characterize their reading profiles. And we published a couple of studies off of this and I just sent the state the final report um, from our center. And I think that more research like that, looking at larger populations of students to characterize what the real profiles are is very much needed. Secondly, I would say following up and going into the classroom to see what they're getting. One of my colleagues at Southern Methodist University, Dr. Stephanie Alateba had been engaging in a project called Project Focus. And that goal was to look and survey practices around RTI to see what's really happening in the classroom instructionally, data collection, data use, and how the students are achieving and the outcomes you're having. So I think that these types of more in the weeds implementation type of research are going to be a starting point for more tightly controlled, better characterized samples and larger samples, I would hope. The research was published in uh, Annals of Dyslexia. The study is titled External Evaluations for Dyslexia, do the data support parent concerns? And our guest co-authors on the study are Tamara Hutchings, who is an early stage doctoral candidate in literacy studies from Spring Hill, Emily Ferris, who is assistant director of the Center for Dyslexia Studies and the MTSU campus, and Eric Osland, who is an associate professor of elementary and special education. And our guest has been the lead author, Dr. Tim Odegaard, who is a professor of psychology and holder of the Murphy Chair of Excellence in Dyslexia Studies. Tim, thank you very much. It's an agonizing problem. Thank you for contributing to our general body of knowledge about how to address it. Thank you for your time and allowing us to have this featured of the, the data. They are heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, but I hope that they can be hopeful as a path forward to bring consensus of hosted origin and division. Thank you. We'll be right back. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. 
There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. MTSU's data science program recently awarded its first graduate certificates to the inaugural cohort of students in the new program. Dr. Charlie Opigian, co-director of the Data Science Institute, explains the benefits of the new program. There's, there's two different types of people that we want to educate in data science. One is we want to give people data skills. The everyday person that wants to get upskilled with the, the right data methods and techniques to continue to move up in their career. They're not going to be a data scientist, but they need to know how to clean data, predict with data, visualize data, because they work in it all day long. That is most of our graduate certificate. A lot of those are really liking what they're doing and want to continue to move up. And so then it goes to a master's level or a PhD. And so these four classes are going to be part of our future master's degree. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.